Hey, it's time for another Naga Notes podcast, and we could not be happier that you were joining us. I am Jake Wiskirchen, your host, and today's podcast involves a conversation with my old mentor. She's not that old. She's old to me. Uh, <laughs> old meaning former. Oh, man. For a guy who teaches people to communicate and uh, is, a, is a language uh, aficionado, I really need to clean up my own language. Anyway, uh, Gail Falstich is my former, not old, former mentor. She uh, guided me through my supervision when I was just but a young intern pup. And we explain all that in this podcast, what a supervisor is and what an intern is, because we believe that it's important for the listening audience to know that if you're hiring a licensed clinician, they've gone through a pretty robust process to get to where they are. And that's not the be all end all. I've said that multiple times that hiring a licensed clinician to help you is uh, akin to hiring an auto mechanic to help you fix your car, uh, doing things that you can't otherwise do yourself. Uh, I know a lot of us out there can do our own car repairs uh, from very basic things like uh, changing the, the, the bulbs and the headlights or the taillights to, um, you know, cleaning your mats. But uh, some of us need a little extra help when it comes to like, you know, brake replacement or, uh, you know, oil changes on some of the more advanced automobiles. And similar to, to that, mental health does the same thing. There's, there's a lot of ways you can help yourself just by connecting through community and family and friends. But sometimes, you know, things are a little out of that realm and you need to hire a licensed professional. And I think it's important to know that when you take on one of us, uh, whether or not you're paying for it yourself out of your own pocket or insurance is picking up the, the bulk of the cost, what's it, what is important is that you know that we are, you know, legitimized by the state or the government or whatever it is that's uh, giving us the blessing to hang the certificate on our wall. So Gail and I talk about the process by which people come into being a licensed clinician, where whether it's a marriage and family therapist or a clinical social worker or a psychologist or a, a professional counselor. And I, I think it, it just behooves everyone to know uh, how we get to where we are because it's it's very much akin to any other profession. You don't just go through a, a you know, an education and then graduate and then get your degree and start working. There's uh, other mechanisms by which you become vetted into the profession, much like a, a plumber, pipe fitter, or a carpenter, or an electrician. Um, we, we study under somebody who's been doing it a while, who has a license, and then also a credential to, to train us and to supervise us. So Gail was that to me, and it was really pleasant to reconnect with her and talk about some of this really important stuff. Um, as always, I want to acknowledge our sponsor, Zephyr Wellness, which is the company that I co-own with Lindsay Bell in Northern Nevada. And you've heard me talk about Zephyr before. If you haven't followed us on social media, please do. We're all over the place, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube particularly. I'm going to start posting some more stuff over the holiday season, and hopefully you can download our free content and just enjoy and, uh, you know, make repairs in your own life wherever you see fit and stay out of my office really like that's that's the point right we should be empowering people to make choices that benefit themselves so that they don't necessarily have to hire a licensed professional and if you do that's fine too uh we're here for you and that's that's the whole point we're trying to you know what they say yeah destigmatize the profession so that we're not some spooky 
people behind the curtain, you know, practicing some sort of occult religion. Uh, that's not what we do. So ZephyrWellness.org and then uh, follow us on social media and follow any of the other really excellent clinicians out there who are putting content out there that benefit and improve your own life. Also, Audible, if you want to go to audibletrial.com slash noggin.notes, you can download a free, uh, sorry, a free, yeah, you get a free download, but you also get a free 30-day trial to explore what they're uh, all about. And what you get is an unmatched selection of audio content. So you get your free audiobook, and whether or not you stick with them or cancel the the subscription, it's up to you, but you get to keep your free audiobook during that time. So uh, 30 days free, go to audibletrial.com slash nogginuts. They kick us a little bit of money to help promote them. And in the process, you get to augment and enhance your own understanding of how the world works by accessing their content. I should probably also mention that I have a second podcast, and I don't know if I've mentioned it too many times, but it's called Guns and Mental Health. And Walk the Talk America, if you go to wtta.org slash love, uh, or just go to wtta.org, you can take a free and anonymous mental health screening. And I think that's an awesome way to check in on your own mental status. But also, uh, if you listen to our podcast, we have some really deep conversations with people all across the country who are experiencing, you know, recovery from whatever they're doing and advocacy and whatever ways they're advocating. And some of the conversations get really deep because Walk the Talk America's mission is really suicide prevention and specifically suicide by firearms. So if you live in a part of the world where you have firearms or even just projectile weapons that uh, can cause injury or death, I think it's worth listening to the Guns and Mental Health podcast because one's right to uh, own such a firearm or such a, uh, you know, a weapon that shoots projectiles, I think is paramount to personal defense and being able to to hunt food and and target shoot and all those things and um, not everywhere in the world allows that so america is uh, somewhat unique in that regard where we get to own firearms and firearms come with the risk of you know harming others and self and so we're trying to advocate for responsible storage and responsible ownership so check out the guns and mental health podcast uh, it's it's co-hosted by me and Michael Sudini, who's the founder of Walk the Talk America. And in the meantime, if you want to just check in on your own mental well-being, go to WTTA.org and take one of the free mental health screenings that we have available for you. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with my friend and mentor, Gail Falstich. Have a good one. Hey, Noggin Notes listeners. Thanks again for joining us. And today my guest is Gail Falstich. Hello, Gail. Hi, Jake. How you doing? Awesome. Uh, you are special and significant to my life, and, and I want the people listening to understand why. Uh, and it's because you were my supervisor for my state-licensed internship uh, many moons ago, as they say. And <laughs> I thought it would behoove the listening audience to help explain what an intern is, uh, what the role of a supervisor is, and also to help create some context around why our profession should be taken seriously, because there's a lot of effort that goes into this, not just from the, the clinicians who train up, but also to the to the mentors who surround them, and you were, you were that for me. So I guess we'll start with a little introduction. You can tell everybody uh, what you're doing. You're retired now, but tell them what you did before you were retired. And before we'll I was there. retired. I'm a... a Reno native. I did all of my schooling here in the Valley. Well, not all, all but two, one, 
one year. I went to University of Pacific for one year in music. <laughs> huh. I didn't know. That. <laughs> now you know. Um, and I came back and got a general studies degree because I couldn't figure out if I wanted to be in psychology or music. I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and they're so related, right? So I <laughs> um, got a general studies degree and then got into the master's program for uh, counseling and educational psychology. So to practice at the level that you and I practice at, you have to have at least a master's degree. Correct. So, um, which is lovely. I love that, that we have to have a master's degree. It makes, it gives us a, a broader view of the world. So what, um, and then since then I worked at uh, Lassen County Mental Health as a clinician. I worked at Children's Cabinet. <clears throat> I worked at a Rainbow Place. And um, I had a private practice, and I worked with DRG psychologists for a while. What's DRG psychologists? It's a, Bill Danton is the psychologist who is still with them. Um, they were a practice that was providing therapy in the community. And they, they came and sought me out, and I thought, well, I would like to get paid more than I'm getting paid currently. <laughs> So I so I did that, and it was interesting. Uh, I what I learned is I don't really like private practice. I prefer to work for an agency. Yeah, um, what you just listed off there, if people are unfamiliar, uh, Lassen County is a county in northern rural California, um, pretty small, woodsy. It's very pretty there, um, and then you mentioned. Children's Cabinet, which is a local nonprofit here in the Reno Sparks area that does focus on children and families. They do a lot, a lot of different programs, uh, mental health outpatient being one of them. And then a Rainbow Place, which I believe turned into something else, or is it closed? A Rainbow Place closed, and in its place opened um, our, our place. Our place, yeah. And that was for the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, one of the few in its existence, and I th maybe the original, if if that re if I remember correctly, there was one years and years ago, and then this went uh, a rainbow place, which opened in the like early two thousands. Okay, and they were open about ten years, and then there was like a two year, three year gap, and then our place opened. Okay. But the theme of, of all those is that, except for the one private practice experience that you had, um, they're all community-based mental health agencies or, or they have a mental health component. So, in other words, you're interacting with community-wide people. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's worth spending some time there because we hear these, these terms thrown around like community-based mental health or outpatient or private practice or uh, hospital or, you know, all these different things. I think it's worth defining some of those terms so that people who are interested in getting their minds treated, if you will, uh, they, <laughs> they can sort of know what's out there for, for options and availability. Well, I think that um, the history of our profession is an interesting one. And community-based mental health really started its big push during the Reagan years. Because Reagan's, one of the things that happened during Reagan's tenure was that he uh, closed all, all it, most, if not all, of the um, 
mental hospitals right, in right. community. Big controversy there. Yeah, at saying that the private sector would come up and provide community-based mental health for all sorts of different people. And that has happened, but not to the extent that was needed. For, for sure. And, and not to the acuity level either. Because you're right. talking about people who are basically living in institutions. And that's, right. that's one of the things that plagues our, our profession is this idea that, you know, once ill, always ill. You must be locked up, straight-jacketed, thrown into a padded room, and, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And some of that existed in the past. And when you close all the hospitals, uh, community providers lack the ability to step up and, and fill that, ga- that gap. Really. Well, and in the short term at that point, you had a, a group of people who were socialized to live in an institution uh-huh. who it- had no community experience. But that's part of the homeless problem that we're looking at now. It is. People who are not capable of living on their own in a community. Now, marriage and family therapy, as far as I'm concerned, can speak to some of that. But there, there's more that needs to happen than what we do to, to address the, the full issue. Let's let's st- stay here for a second because I want to hear your opinions on this because you have some strong ones, and they're, they're not <laughs> really well. They're not. It's why we clicked as as intern and and uh, supervisors because we both have strong opinions, and we I think I think iron sharpened iron a little bit. You definitely encouraged me to continue having my own strong opinions, which I think has been a benefit to a lot of people. But I want to hear this. Like we have this problem right where. Federal law, a mixture of state law, doesn't allow for individuals to be "quote unquote" institutionalized. Um, they can't. They can't live in a place with more than six beds, and and some of the laws vary by by locale. Um, but we have this this burgeoning homeless problem with people who are largely mentally ill and or substance abuse addicted, and um, and no place to put them because laws stand in the way. And community-based treatment on an outpatient level is insufficient, but there's also there are, they're resource deficient as well. Um, so, so give me some some of your take on this because I know you have it, some ideas, and they're not entirely unworkable. <laughs> well, I have a lot of ex- experience with this community. Actually, um, one of the things I know is in terms of homelessness is that if we provide homes. Like if if we provide housing to people, then they're, they become stable enough to access outpatient services. That's something called the housing first model, right? It is, okay. and it actually works. Yeah. In the in the places in this country where they have put it in place, it has worked beautifully, and it's much cheaper than not having people in yeah. housing. Yeah, yeah. So so that's the first thing. So what I know is that if you put someone in in a situation where they are stable, where they have somewhere to go home to at night, where they're not in danger when they're at home, then they're able to access community-based services, whether that's health services, mental health services, job help services, all sorts, there's all sorts of things that that Mm -hmm. work better in that situation. I know it's a shock to us to think that the services first is not the the way that works best, but it really isn't. Well, it's it's Maslow's hierarchy. If anybody knows Maslow's hierarchy, at the bottom you have say uh, you know your basic needs, which is your your food, 
clothing, water, you know, sustenance, right above that is safety, uh, safety and security. And some people can argue that basic needs is shelter, basic needs is security, but, but irrespective of the, the argument, that's got to come on one of those first two levels. And service provision is, is up higher on the, on the ladder. So above that, you got love and belonging, which is number three. Above that, you got esteem needs. And that's mm-hmm. like your education and so forth. So somewhere in love and belonging or esteem and even self-actualization, which is the top of the pyramid is where our, you know, our talk therapy comes in. It's like, I can't focus on talk therapy if I'm not, if my belly's empty or if I don't know where right. I'm going home at the end of the night, but it's like, you know, we got this, well, just, just pay more services. And it's like, you know, <laughs> they can't focus. It's like having a kid in school who's, you know, going home to an abusive household. He's not going to pay attention in math. It doesn't well, work. One of, actually, truly one of the, the, the most clear interventions I ever made in therapy was a diabetic who came into my office first thing in the morning in crisis, couldn't figure out what was going on. I real, talked it over with him for a little while and realized he was diabetic. Handed him the orange from my lunch. He ate the orange, his brain turned on, and he was fine. That's amazing. Yeah, l- little things that we overlook because we get so caught up in, like, you know, how's your depression? <laughs> uh, physiologically, I just need to eat. <laughs> well, and that is... Often the problem, I mean, you can work with people who have terrible problems and decide that it's this thing when it's really physically based, like anxiety. Diabetes is one of those really pervasive diseases in our culture, and it masquerades in mental health ways a lot. Mm -hmm. So people who have no other triggers but diabetes will often show up with Anxiety. Interesting. So we've got the order inverted. Because mm-hmm. they're sending you to mental health and you have anxiety and depression, but it's your diabetes is out of control. So until we get the diabetes under control, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So back back to the, the, the homeless problem. Um, housing first model. Good. Um <laughs> uninstitutionalized people who have houses because some of those we call them you know group homes or community-based living arrangements um that doesn't doesn't fit the bill either why why not why is that insufficient um well i find it insufficient because often those are run on a corporate model yes and i find corporate models are often less flexible and less loving True. And so because to make any kind of movement in your life, you need to have a stable relationship with someone. We just do. From the time we're born on, we need to have a stable relationship with someone. It doesn't have to be a parent, but we need to have a stable relationship. And so you put someone in a, in a home situation, six beds, owned by a corporation, and then the corporation decides that they need to change their staff for whatever reason. Well, if the person that they're changing out is someone that I have a close relationship with and you put someone in there that I don't click with, I've, I've been abandoned. Yeah, well, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No. So that really changes the way that we function if you if you 
continu- have continual abandonment. One of the problems that I see just in general, and as marriage and family therapist, one of the most important things I can do in a relationship, also as a supervisor, is model a healthy relationship, right? Right, right. So often we don't see healthy relationships. And so we, if you've never experienced a healthy relationship with good boundaries and the ability to say, I can't do this right now, but I'll be back with you and follow up and all of those things, then how do we ever have those relationships? And our culture doesn't help us. We don't live in neighborhoods forever anymore. We, I just got done, the, the audience doesn't know this, but we have back-to-back podcasts today. There's like three of them. And I just got done discussing that exact topic in the previous podcast about how we used to work a job forever, right? And then we'd retire and move on. Uh-huh. Um, that wasn't that long ago. That would be like my parents' generation. Before that, we had um, almost like career as identity where, you know, Joe, the farmer is Joe, the farmer, because Joe, the farmer's dad is also a farmer and his dad was a farmer. And, and, and that created predictability and stability and also a community of, you know, farmers or whatever and transactions, uh, in the marketplace around the same type of career path and whatnot. And these days, however, uh, the, the, you know, was, was the average person have like seven careers or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that in and of itself begets a lot of inconsistency and lack of connectivity, you know, in, in, in deep, meaningful ways, not to mention our cultural uh, overlay of disposability or, you know, everything's mm-hmm. disposable now and you can just replace it and, and including your relationships, right? <laughs> your marriages and, uh, well, and your doctor. Yeah, totally. Doctor. I mean, this, the first, in my life, I had the same doctor for years and years when I was young and then I had the same couple of doctors when I was an, an adult, a young adult. And now it's like, oh, your insurance changed, your doctor changes. Right. Thankfully, because I have MS, thankfully my specialists tend to be stable so that I don't have to change all of my treatment modalities every time anything changes in my life. Yeah, or a bare minimum I'm having to tell the story over again. You know, well, and that's why people object to changing their therapist so often is because they don't want to change, tell their story some more. Right. One of the ways I normalize that is that telling your story again gives you new insight into it. That's a good, that's a good takeaway. Uh, that, that might be my takeaway right there. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Just to tell your story again. Well, it, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I process things auditorily. And it really helps me to say something out loud because I get it in a way I never got it thinking it in my head. Well, it makes it concrete, too. Once you put words to it, you can't run away from it anymore. If it's just lingering in your head, you can kind of like do some mental gymnastics and get away from the reality of whatever it is. But if you you say it, especially if you say it in front of somebody, uh, and then one level up from that would be saying it and writing it down and sharing it because then it's really real. Um, But that's that's a good reminder. Well, and that's one of the things that I really like about couples therapy is that we can have a fight, say we're married. We mm-hmm. wouldn't be, but say we, yeah. say we were married. We could be having fights over and over and over and over again. But if we sit down with a therapist 
and we start to have a fight, and then we have to explain what's going on in our head to the therapist, so we bring that third person in. I've now just explained it to my therapist, but I've also explained it to my partner, who I have been assuming understood my process, because I don't know why. We all are mind readers at heart, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, or at least we think the other person should be. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Well, and we all spend a lot of time second-guessing. This is what I think they're doing. Everybody. Carl Jung, who's one of our big names in the field, talks a lot about projection. And so when we project, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we can project what we think the person needs us to be, but we can also project in a way that fills in our, our gaps and tries to pretend that they are doing what we need them to be. And some of that is mind reading. So when you say something like, um, I'd rather not have pizza tonight, um, what you want them to understand is, don't order pizza, I want steak. But you didn't say steak, you just said, I'd rather not have pizza tonight. So the mind reading comes in with the projection of like, well, I've been with this person for a long time, and there's then there's an implied should. They should know... <laughs> that alternate to pizza, steak is my favorite. But unless we directly express that, there's no possible way that that could ever be understood. So we end up communicating past each other, and that happens a lot in couples' interactions, certainly boss to employee as well and parent to child. And um, so in in counseling and in the therapeutic office, when we speak things into existence that the person right there next to us can clearly understand what we want, and if they don't, we have an opportunity to to correct that, right? And even if we don't know how to do that, hopefully the counselor is modeling good questioning behavior and will say, clarify that for me. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Not um, always, but hopefully. And, and one of the things I know about therapy is if you have a good relationship with your clients, they'll come back even if you miss it the first time. Yeah. So if, if I have an interaction with my client and they say something to me and I missed it because I'm only human. Mm-hmm. If it's truly important, it comes back. So it may not come back in that session, it'll come back another session. Right, right. And and you're talking about good rapport building, and rapport is not magic. It's not there is a skill set and there's some intentionality required for building good rapport. And I want to pull back the lens a little bit before we this train really gets out of the station. Um, and talk about what <laughs> Are you sure we're not already out of the station? We're we're chugging, we're chugging, but we can uh, we can throttle throttle down a little bit. So, what I want people to understand is what what you and I believe is good therapy, and I think that that you and I do good therapy, and I think we model that. And there's bad therapy out there, and there's lazy diagnostics, and there's there's people just collecting a paycheck, and you know, it's, not all therapists are created equal. I think what we want to do is we want to paint the picture of what people can expect in their in their counseling interactions. And it starts with training. So let's go back a little bit and talk about training. So you mentioned graduate degree, master's program. And I'll see this. What's that? A master's program, yeah. Yeah, master's program. Uh, So you've gone through your four years of undergraduate studies, and then typically it's a three-year program, at least one year of which is spent doing face-to-face practicum time. So you're learning how to be a counselor with live individuals, but heavily supervised by your professors, or your site supervisor, that kind of thing. So, you typically so, a sixty credit program, right? And then, uh, and then we finish, and we graduate, and then, sorry, 
<laughs> well, no, so because I taught at the graduate level too. Um, I forgot to mention that. Sorry. <laughs> it was just one of those many things I did. Woman of many so, <laughs> one of the thousands of things. One of the things I know about the graduate program is that when I started, it was really a 30 to 40 credit program. It, right. it and while I was there, because we no longer do in counseling and educational psychology, a, uh, a, you know, those grand papers that you do in a, in right. a dissertations or theses or whatever. This is a practice-based model. It's like being a doctor. Right. You, by the time you're done with this, you are actually practicing on people with lots and lots and lots of input and buys on. Correct. Which I love. So, um, so then once you graduate, you have to get in, get a supervisor who is a <clears throat> licensed therapist who has, I, is it, it used to be two years, then it was, is it five years now of experience? Uh, so for the state of Nevada, because I can only speak the state of Nevada, I've studied other states, but I, I, my brain's too fuzzy to, to bring them in right now. Um, but for the state of Nevada, you need to have been practicing for three years post-internship. So during the internship period, when you, ha- you are supervised, um, you're considered uh, you know, fledgling and not of your own free will and accord, so to speak. So once you complete your internship, you have to practice for three years. And then uh, during that time, you can take the the supervision courses and whatnot. And there's a variety of ways that that you can become a supervisor that we don't need to get into here. But you can take those courses and do the practice hours. So you're essentially learning to supervise from a supervisor. And that is what allows you to uh, become a supervisor of interns. Uh, yes. So, and you don't just have one supervisor when you're in your internship, which is about, what is it? 3000 hours of supervised practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 3000 hours includes the actual supervision time sure. and some other things, but it's 3000 hours total. Well, 2000 hours is a full, full-time year. Right. If you, if you do the, uh, 40 hours a week times 50 weeks, yeah. Right, and if you are seeing clients for 40 hours a week, you have just lost your mind. Yeah, at, at, certainly at that stage of your career, yes, for sure. At, at almost any stage. Yeah. 30 hours is really considered a, a pretty high-level high therapeutic load, in my experience. Mm-hmm. I've done more, and I've regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so... It takes about three years to do that. And in that time, you have two supervisors. You have a primary supervisor, and that's the person whose license you are using, which means that the supervisor has to really trust their interns because they're practicing under their license. Right. And we can analogize this to medical doctors who graduate medical school, and they're called doctor, and they have all the rights and privileges thereto pertaining. But what they are usually in at that point is a residency, and they're practicing mm-hmm. under someone else's license. So they're a doctor, but they're still supervised as a resident doctor. Uh, you mm-hmm. don't call them anything different. Uh, for our profession, we call them interns for some reason. Some states call them associates, which I think is a little more appropriate uh, because intern sounds academic. Uh, sounds like you're still in school. and It begets a lot of suspicion from the clientele base. But, uh, but you are licensed. Uh, you're just licensed under someone else's supervision. Right. And so you do have, you have to have, you have to have it, 
acquired the basic educational parameters and completed the application process to get your internship license. Right. So you have that basic level of license. And then the one you're practicing under, the legal license that you're practicing under is your supervisor's Mm -hmm. license. So now you have on your side, like I walk into the intern's office because interns are cheaper to see. They just are because we're trying to get our experience. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And you get a much greater breadth of experience if you don't, don't have to charge as much. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, but when you walk into your intern's office, you get your intern's experience. They're three years of school plus however many years they've been in their internship plus the three plus years of experience of the supervisor plus that supervisor's <laughs> internship and their supervisor's experience. So you've got a lot of experience in the room Yeah, when you, with you, when you sit down, even with an intern. Yeah, I actually, uh, I often say, so at our agency at Zephyr Wellness, we host graduate students who are going through those practicum hours that are required before you get your, your degree. <laughs> and, um, people don't really hesitate too much anymore these days, but the ones who do, I, we've, we've trained our office staff well enough now. And I experienced this too, when I was running the phones that when they hesitate or they balk at, you know, oh, a student or, Oh, an intern, what's that mean? We give them that same spiel that you just gave, which is they're, they're surrounded by some really good advice and they don't, they don't get to go too far off the leash. Um, and that actually really reassures people because they go, Oh, so instead of seeing, a sole practitioner, perhaps, who doesn't consult at all, because some of them don't. Um, I get this person who's more or less compelled to consult multiple times a week on, on my case and the, and the other cases that they have. And typically, those caseloads are a little lower when you're an intern uh, because you want to be growing and developing as an intern or as a student and not simply churning out hours and making money. Because if you're doing that, if you are rocking the 30 to 35 hours a week as an intern, um, it it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for personal growth and and exploration and consultation. That's yeah, yeah. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I like agency work is because if I am having a particularly difficult case, I can duck out into the hallway, grab my free compatriot, right? Pull him into my room and say, "I'm having a problem, and I need to talk this over with somebody," and. I find therapists who do that are better therapists. Yep. Yep. And and I would add on to that, that what you introduced me to, because I've had it both ways. I've had individual supervision where you just one-on-one with your supervisor and group supervision. Group supervision is not a classroom setting. It shouldn't be a classroom setting, at least, where the supervisor is the all-knowing uh, disseminator of information into the empty waiting vessels. Uh, it should be collaborative because... In any given group setting, you're going to have a variety of people who have their own life experiences and and insights and and intelligences. And if you don't tap into those, you're not going to have a very robust experience in that group setting. So now let's take a group Mm -hmm. supervision. An intern presents a case, and the members of the group all weigh in. Uh, Typically, you're going to have a variety of methodologies and modalities and theories and perspectives. So 
we'll take for example, and this is going to sound like lingo, but um, you know, if I have a, if I present a case and I'm a William Glasser oriented person with choice theory and reality therapy as my my modality, there might be a cognitive behavioral therapist and a solution focused brief therapist and a Jungian analytic psychological oriented person all giving different perspectives on the case that I'm presenting. That's a really <laughs> fruitful, well fertilized <laughs> conversation, right? Um, and I should walk out of there with a whole bunch more knowledge uh, to, that I can apply to my case. So what you showed us in that group setting is that, and you fostered this with the cross cons- consultation and cross talk that we had, um, that we all grew exponentially more because of the, the benefit of having the other interns around us and not just one unilateral supervisor telling us what to do through you know her perspective. So mm-hmm. to your point about the agency work, if, if you're getting treatment in an agency setting, Chances are your case is going to get more attention in the hallway and in, and at the at the break table and all that stuff. Uh, not because we're gossipy people. In fact, we're we're specifically uh, you know admonished not to do that, um, but because we care so deeply about providing good treatment and we have the access to our fellow clinicians that you end up getting more eyeballs on your on your presentation than than you would otherwise have in a in a private practice setting. Which, which is very helpful, I, f- I find. As, as a therapist, I find it very helpful. Mm-hmm. As a client, I think it's also very helpful. I, I think that's really a good thing. Um, my son and his wife, for lack of a better term, and his daughter, her stepdaughter, are in therapy together. And the daughter presented with some interesting um, play that looked significant to the the therapist and to my son and his uh, wife. And uh, they chose at that time to put her in with a play therapist in the session. So they talked it over and made an appointment for the child before they left. So if they weren't working with an agency, they wouldn't have been able to do that. That's true too. Yeah. It's, 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 it's easier to find somebody under, one roof with multiple practitioners than it is, you know, thumbing through the yellow pages. Um, hopefully you're not thumbing through the yellow pages. If you know somebody in the community, uh, they can make a, a strong recommendation for a good fit. Um, but I want to go back to the, the two directions I want to go there. One is about our profession marketing itself and how we should all like interact. But the other is about family systems work or systems work in general. So earlier in the conversation, I think you were talking about how, um, in, in the, in the course of treatment, when we speak something in front of our significant others, um, they will hear it differently. Right. And we have the opportunity to clarify communication and all sorts of things. So that may not necessarily beget couples work. And I'm curious your opinion, because I know mine, but I, I don't want to share it. I want to, I want to hear yours about, Treating someone, quote-unquote, individually, say they have a, quote-unquote, individual problem, like, say, with uh, with alcohol consumption, and bringing in the significant other, if they're, if they're married. If they're not, then, you know, that's a different story. But if they're married, do you advocate treating that person individually, uh, so it goes, or do you just bring in the other party so they can hear what goes on? Maybe they're not even participating, um, but it seems to have an advantage. Would you advocate for that systemically? Systemically, I always like to treat the whole system. I think there are some things that are better treated 
outside of the system, but you can't know that until you had eyes on the whole system. Fair point. And um, in terms of alcohol and drug abuse, this is a hot topic. I mean, it's been a hot topic as long as I've been working with this. You have to deal with the, the, the addicted person and their addiction, and that's the, that should be the focus of the whole thing if you're an alcohol and drug counselor. My feeling is that um, addiction in a system is a symptom and not the focus. And when you make it the focus, you're not looking for the problem anymore. Couldn't agree more. Um, I think that in my experience, when a couple is having problems with alcohol and drug abuse, infidelity, any number of things, once you pull the system in and start looking at the system, now everybody's looking at the system instead of at the problem person. Then you start looking at why is one of you feeling like they need to act out in whatever way that is. Now that may be a reflection of their own childhood and they're now playing it out in their current relationship. It may be a, a, a physical predisposition to addiction. Lots of people have them. <clears throat> it could be any number of things. And some of it's just that miscommunication again. I find often that we have people who say, I want a monogamous relationship. Often. I expect to have a monogamous relationship. That's my ex expectation. And yet they repeatedly have their partner go out and have affairs. And then they accept them back, forgiving, the, the ex forgiving that behavior without ever renegotiating their contract. Their expectation is still that they're going to have a monogamous relationship, right? I don't know how much couples therapy you've been doing since I've not been. Quite a bit, yeah. No, you're right. I'm, I'm just nodding in, in like, sorry, if, I, if my eyebrows are furrowed, it's to, to <laughs> indicate that I'm paying close attention to what you're saying, and I agree. So in my experience, you have to renegotiate that contract because that's what marriage is. It's a contract. And it's a contract on so many levels. We act like marriage is this marvelous thing where we meet the person that we fall in love with and we decide we're going to spend the rest of our life with them and we don't talk about any of the little business type things. But you really have to talk about all the business. Right. That's and hard. Once you, it is hard. And once you started having problems in your relationship, you really have to talk about the business. It, in my view because I do this emotional functioning thing that I learned from your friend and mine Chuck Holt um, it's it's a matter of intimacy to explore the issues and intimacy is begat by vulnerability and most people don't want to avoid don't want to go into vulnerability because it comes with an implied risk and risk of what pain you get hurt if you're vulnerable so as a consequence we don't get intimate with each other we, we stay surfacy and we, we pretend we're living in the, the romanticized movie version of whatever relationship is and we don't have to do the hard work. 
Um, so when I say it's hard uh, or it's scary, what I mean is people typically don't want to embrace the vulnerability that's required to solve the problem that that then yields bliss, right? So we're, we're okay with some sort of contentment or some sort of thrill, um, mm-hmm. but we don't, we don't, we don't ever achieve bliss because we've, we've obstructed ourselves from being vulnerable enough to say, I might have some faults. Uh, it's easier for me to point out your faults and make you, you fix them. Right? So how do we as clinicians help invite people into that vulnerability, knowing that there's a, a reasonable expectation of, of success on the other side, that life could be so much better. Your marriage could be so much healthier. Your, your relationship with your child could be so much better if you would just get out of your own way. Right. And, and, and invite in this feedback. Well, and I, I try not to say that to them because <laughs> getting out of your own way is not ever a good way of, of moving people along. Um, my experience is that I start off with, okay, you're in marriage counseling because it's not working. So doing what you're doing isn't working. So worst case, at the other end of therapy, we're going to have a better divorce. Because we will have talked out the issues and we will know what it is we want from the divorce, even if we can't figure out what you wanted from your marriage. So, so if, if we think about that in those terms, doesn't that inherently mean that you'll end up staying together though not necessarily i've had people come through therapy with me and sometimes they've renegotiated their contract and say you know i thought i was socialized to believe that monogamy was the be all and end all clearly in my relationship it's not that important Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. but what i want is the intimacy implied in that monogamy that i was taught about as a child Mm. And there's all kinds of intimacy. Some of them are sexual. Most of them are not. Correct. And I want those other kinds of intimacy. So what I want you to do before you go out on me and sleep with someone else is tell me you're going to do that. How often does that actually happen, though? More often than you'd think. So that that then would, it seems like it would result in a conversation about, well, we entered into this original contract, maybe misaligned. We didn't mm-hmm. truly understand each other's expectations, right? Right. Hmm. It sounds like yeah. the, the expectations might be rigid, though. Like, I came in years ago with this idea in my head, and I'm not going to change my mind. It almost sounds kind of almost, I don't know if cold is the right word, but... Um, I think the, rigid is the right word. Yeah, no, I mean, like, with disregard for the partner is what I'm, what I'm going for there. It's like, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to stick on my, you know, I'm going to stand on my thing and not, and not bend. And, and that is the product of an unhealthy relationship with the parent. Because you've been taught that you have to rigidly protect yourself. You don't have any boundaries that are flexible. Your boundaries are rigid because they have to be because it's all about safety. Right. And so this is, I mean, this safety is a huge issue in relationships, right? Yeah, it seems to be getting more and more that way too. I, I think it's just, about, but... I think that your lens is changing. Oh, Truth. you think it's always been that way? I think that, that it has been that, that way for as long as I've been practicing. 
but I know that my lens changes so that different parts of that are highlighted by what's going on in my own life and the world as we know it and um, in the therapy that I'm doing. I was loosely chalking it up to diffuse boundaries from, say, uh, my generation or the generation in between mine and my parents where we were, you know, granted a co- uh, like achievement recognitions for not achieving anything or um, being not allowed to tolerate our distress, you know, being pulled out of it by spoiling. Cause as, as economy has done what economy does, things get cheaper and it's, it's easier just to, to, to throw stuff at your kids for a distraction rather than to spend time with them. Um, mm-hmm. So therefore the, the safety component there seems to be more prevalent and probably more significant than yesteryear. And I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't doing therapy in the nineties, so I don't, I don't really know. I can't speak to it, let alone the eighties or the seventies, but I have noticed in the last dozen or so years I've been doing this, that it's, it seems to be more frequent and more and more deep. Uh, this, this concept of avoidance, um, uh, evasion, um, you know, protecting oneself rather than being intimate it it seems like it's like everywhere now, and and maybe maybe that's just because I've I've gotten better at my my theory, but I don't know. I, I also think that you're able to see more. I think the other thing that we know that I know is that things like uh, child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. If you go by people's long histories, that never happened. In the old days, That's right? True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. I see where you're going here. Yeah. And yet, you know, and I know that it happened all the time. Just no one ever talked about it. Right. So what's happening now is that we are talking more and more about our own experiences, our own fears, our need for safety. We're what happens in your house isn't the closed book that it was. 40 years ago. Correct. So I think that those things inform what we see now and we make the assumption that this is a new thing when I think it's just an exposed thing. That sounds like a, a positive. It sounds like it sounds like it'd be positive that we're talking more about the, the demons that lurk in the shadows. But I guess the flip side of that coin is that it makes it look like everybody's sick now. And, and maybe they are. But are they sick to the degree that everybody needs professional counseling, which is overtaxing the system? <laughs> okay, so let me talk a little bit about how I look at counseling. Because I think there's several different ways that we come to counseling. Okay. Um, you look at your basic psychologist, right? And his worldview is generally, not always, but generally, that you're broken, you're sick, I... I, the expert, can fix you. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's been the historical characterization of that profession. That's a generalization, but it is a a reasonable generalization. Then we have your social worker, who is, the system's broken. You don't fit well in the system. I, the expert, can help you fit better in the system. Right. Right. And that's where they're at very... At the same time, I will try to change the, the system. Correct. Yeah, so they're focused on resources and yeah. Right. Okay. So I feel that as a 
counselor, as a marriage and family therapist, you're not broken. You have everything that you need to get better. What I do is not function as an expert so much as a person standing up outside the the maze, if you will, and I'm able to say, turn left at the corner. So it's not so much that you're broken. It's that I have some skills and some understanding of the system so I can so that together we can navigate it. It's a cooperative learning experience as opposed to me fixing you. Mm-hmm. In excellent therapy, I learn as much from my client as they learn from me. I would agree. And, and I learn as much from my students and my interns as they do from me. And I know they don't, they would, they don't say that. They're like, Oh, how could you possibly say that? <laughs> you bring a lot <laughs> as it turns out. Well, well, and, and, and it changes the way I see what I'm seeing. I mean, every single one of you guys changed something about the way I was working. It what it what it really points to is your your my whoever's ability who's doing the the guiding, the shepherding, the 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 counseling, uh, the mentorship, whatever we want to call it. It points to our ability to receive feedback and not only receive it because sometimes that happens where where I go, I think you're off on this one, Gail. Um, but more often, I think it's the ability to seek wisdom in the conversation, not wait for it to hit me across the head, but really be receptive and open to the idea that you can you can gain knowledge and wisdom anywhere at any time from anybody. And, mm-hmm. and that requires a humility that does not necessarily walk the same with expertise. Expertise to most people's ears, I think sounds like a top-down approach. And I, and I wouldn't discount our expertise at all. I would say that, you know, the reason that we get paid well and people hire us to, to do what we do is because we do possess that extra knowledge that they don't. I mean, we did go to school. We have tens of thousands of hours of practice. So, you know, there's some expertise there, but we're not taking the position of expert mm-hmm. insofar as, hey, your brakes need fixing. <laughs> now we may say, "Hey, you, you need to quit drinking if you want to get serious about this relationship with your wife," um, and that's you know that's called like directive therapy or guided therapy or whatever that some people don't like. Um, but I think to eschew our expertise is probably to probably invalidate what we do a little bit too. So it's it's a it's a balance, right? It's a balance. It, it really is a balance. And when you when I talk about what I see therapy as being, and it's that relation, that healthy relationship, that um, ability to see beyond the the walls. I mean, it's like you go. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You go to therapy yourself, and the therapist says, "Well, you know all this. Why are you even here?" Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking at them, thinking, "I'm here because I need your expertise, because." I'm in the maze. I keep running up against the walls. It doesn't matter how much experience I have at helping other people. Sometimes I need help too. And so when I have people who are like, well, I just need a good friend. Well, yeah, you do need a good friend. Everybody needs a good friend. (laughs) I'm not going to acknowledge, I'm not going to say that that's not true. Everybody needs a good friend, but sometimes we need more than a good friend. It's like, if I'm having a serious medical problem, I don't need a good friend to tell me, you have a fever. Right. I need a good friend to look at me and say, Go to there's something care. else going on here. <laughs> and, and I need a doctor who will say to me, hmm, 
perhaps we need to do more testing or I've seen this before. It looks like measles to me. Right. right. So you, we were, before we started recording, you and I were talking about why our profession is necessary in the first place. And I've been on this kick lately of trying to talk down the idea that everybody needs to reach for the graduate level licensed by the government to, you know, practice person. I think there's tons of help that can be had, not only from paraprofessionals who are community health workers and bachelor's level folks and in-home workers, many of whom don't get funded by insurance, unfortunately, but, but there's that, but then there's also human connectivity. And, and mm. my, my common phraseology is, you know, somehow or another, Homo sapiens made it the last 40,000 years without us. <laughs> uh, but yeah. you brought something to my attention that I'm, I'm starting to chew on and change my mind around is the idea that since the inception of our profession or, uh, you know, parallel to it, some 120 or so years ago, um, society has needed us to grow into and step into that space that was previously occupied by other people. Talk, talk a little bit about your idea there, because I think it's, it's really good. Well, I think that um, in the previous 400,000 years of humanity. <laughs> Four, 40, not. I think. I don't know about 400,000. <laughs> I like to think of us as being more important than we are. So many of us do. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but in our distant past. We were small family groups. There would be a titular head of that family group. And there would often be one person who was in charge of the spiritual, if you were, will, and, and how to make the relationships within that group work. The and shaman as, or the medicine man or the shaman, the medicine man, even just the mom, just the mom, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, those people were in charge of making that work. And um, as we've, as a culture, have become more distant from our families and from our religions, we don't have those mechanisms any longer. So when we grow up in a family, we assume that's normal for everyone. Well, I don't know a family that's normal. Do you? Yeah, all of them. (laughs) They're all normal, right? (laughs) They're all normal. They're all normal for them. We actually had a book called Normal Family Processes in school. I don't know if you had that, how many iterations it came. But, yeah, I looked at the title when it was assigned. I was like, whose definition of normal? And they were like, that's what this class is about. And I was like, oh, it's an ironic title. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to do that. But, But that's really the issue is what's normal. Well, there's no normal. You can't look at something and say, this is normal. Well, that's normal for you. Now, when I look, and and I also don't like the the statement when people say, well, that's an unhealthy family system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't. Uh, So judgy. Well, not even just judgy. It's like, so at some point, it wouldn't have become a system if it hadn't worked at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I want to pause for a second. People are like, what do you mean if if it's unhealthy but it works? Um, if it doesn't work, it's it stops or it turns into something else, right? So it's only somebody else's observation that it's unhealthy. And it may be the people in the system that go, we've been doing this for years and, it, and we don't like it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's, that's your recognition, right? But at some point or another, those patterns and habits served a purpose. So uh-huh. thinking back to our couple that doesn't talk because one's addicted to alcohol or whatever, 
that worked at some point. The, the drinking worked, and it worked maybe to serve as a protection against uh, mm-hmm. intimacy or... Uh, or maybe it facilitated the inf- intimacy. It, it could have. It totally could have, yeah. Uh, and then it and then it stopped working at some point. But the, the pattern is still in place, and that's what we're talking about. You know, what's normal, what's unhealthy, what's... Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, just in case anybody was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> How could it be unhealthy that's- and work? <laughs> well, because lots of things work that aren't healthy. Mm-hmm. Children, children arguing with their parents over schoolwork works if they now don't get normal, healthy attention. And I just use normal, right. but if they're not getting healthy, positive attention. Any attention will do. So failing to do one's schoolwork to get yelled at is a form of attention. It's not great attention, but it's attention. Well, and you know, with children, and this is the I have never seen so many parents in my life go, "Oh, I get it now." When I talk about attention, I say, attention is the issue. And they're like, okay, they want good attention. I said, no, they want attention. They're like, what? I said, the attention scale in your head as an adult, we go, it is good attention, no attention, bad attention. But for children, it's good attention, bad attention, then no attention at the very bottom because they want attention. Right, right. They, they don't have, to have the ability to, to discern. Mm-hmm. Well, and and as a teenager, as a small child, you don't ever really think about it in the way that I don't want anybody's attention so I can get away with something yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. As a teenager, it's like, I'm going to skirt, skirt by your attention so that I can get away with something. But as a small child, you don't do that. You just want the attention. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Right. And I think it's it's important not to pathologize that, too, because a lot of that is just normal development of children trying to separate and individuate themselves and so forth. So, you know, I don't know if I had a dime for every time a parent came in complaining about normal teenage behavior as though it's something pathological, I wouldn't probably have to work anymore. Um, so we want to normalize some of this, too. Normal can be developmentally normal. Um you know, expected well, behaviors. Those are the things that I find so funny. My favorite thing that has happened to me lately, I was, because you can't turn off the counselor. I have a, a, a nurse who's my nurse uh, who, who does a lot of work with me. And she's having problems with her 12-year-old daughter. Sound mm. familiar? <laughs> and the biggest problem that they seem to be having, it's a melded family, blah, 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 um, is tone. I understand what they're saying, but their tone is so bad. I'm like, so you need to become tone deaf. And they're like, what? I'm like, it doesn't matter what their tone is. If you, you need to respond to the words, not the tone. <laughs> they're like, but the tone is driving me crazy. You're letting it drive you crazy. Right. Well, and again, expectations with reality, right? You know, d- d- uh, petulant teenager is going to communicate something in a greater level of exigency than may be necessary. <laughs> so there's a teaching well, moment there. Well, and unexpe- un- unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't expect a teenager to behave as an adult. I can. But we do. But yeah. One of the basic functions of being a teenager is crazy. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you actually put teenage behavior behavior up against adult behavior, it always looks psychotic. Yep. If it doesn't look psychotic, there's some major problem going on. Yep. Yep. 
that's just my my knowledge as both a parent and a therapist. It's like they should recognize the trash needs taken out when it's full to overflowing. I'm like, they don't. And you can't expect them to because they don't. You recognize it. it. Do they take it out when you tell them? Well, yes, they do. Then you have won the battle. <laughs> but I wanted him to smile when he did it. <laughs> yeah. Or I wanted him to notice that it, that the dishwasher needed to be loaded. Okay. I know adults who can't figure out when the dishwasher needs to be loaded. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> you also have that problem. <laughs> Someone in my You're home thinks problem. I have that problem. Yeah, it's it's an opportunity to teach too. If we if we have expectations for our kids and we don't communicate what those expectations are repeatedly, by the way, then mm -hmm. they're invariably not going to hit them. So it's an opportunity to say, "I hear what you're saying. Hey, are you aware of your tone? Because your tone used here, I understand it. But if you use that same tone with your teacher, you might find yourself in trouble." And, and then they go, "Hmm, what is the tone?" And then it's our job as as parents to educate. And, well, and that is so organized and so grown up of you. I personally pick a more humorous intervention. So respond to what they say and use their own tone back to them. Let's see how they respond to, the, to that. Well, it's fabulous because the kids go, Ooh, that was awful. Well, that's what you, that's the way you said it to me. I thought that's the, the, the modality for today. So I did that with my five-year-old. He just screams at me. It drives him oh. berserk. And I said, don't like it. Don't talk to me like that. Mm -hmm. He's getting better. It's but he's five. And, and Christian Conti, who's, you know, big, you know, mentor in my Love life, him. a great mm -hmm. friend. He, he has this rule of a thousand, <laughs> like whoever's counting, I don't, raise your hand, I guess. But he says, if, if I ever get to telling my daughter a thousand times and she still doesn't do it, then I can be upset. I was like, mm -hmm. that's pretty good because I think in our heads, we think that we've told our kids a thousand times when really we've only told them like seven or eight <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and they well, keep letting us down. And that's when um, Jerry Downing, I actually had Jerry Downing as a professor he's the namesake of the downing clinic at the university of nevada counseling and education department's uh counseling clinic yes he died during my tenure as a student hmm. but amazing guy and i a lot of the things uh cooperative education like the cooperative learning experience that's from jerry downing stuff like that he was amazing but one of the things he, he was a big fan, and he's like one of the few people I really admire who is a, a huge fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he was like, you need to take that behavior that you want to, to fix and jelly bean it to death. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Explain that. So you have the behavior that you're like, I don't like this one. I do like this one. So you jelly bean the one that you want to grow, right? You just keep jelly beaning it. Oh, you did such a great thing. Here, have There's another jelly bean. bean. <laughs> yeah. It was like, well, now I, it actually made cognitive behavioral therapy makes sense to me in that context in a way it never had before. Jelly bean it to death. Yeah. I need to get more jelly beans. <laughs> only if you want to encourage uh, 
diabetes in your clients. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe not that many jelly beans. I'm struggling <laughs> enough with two advent calendars per child right now, and they're they're you know constantly consuming chocolate <sighs> we, before um, breakfast. A uh, an advent calendar that is reusable from year to year. That's cool. You and put beer in it or what? It's felt. Oh. <laughs> so they get to put the number one on the tree or the whatever you're using mm. every day so that they're building something from their advent calendar instead of consuming. That's pretty cool. I like that idea. Because, yeah, I never thought about that. You're, you're, you're consuming as opposed to constructing. Huh. See? Learn something new every day. Hey, I'm all about those things. You know me. Yeah. Um, and thinking differently and so on and so forth. Um, I, well, as my my partner of the time said, you exploded the box. You didn't just think outside it. You just exploded it. No boxes in my area. <laughs> Unless there's a good reason for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that speaks to you know my favorite word in counseling, which is intentionality. It's the spirit of knowing why you do what you do. If you can act in a in the spirit of intentionality, then you can have boxes. That's fine. You just know why they're there. They're not just there because they've always been there. And don't don't make it go away. Um, but <laughs> no, we need that box. Why yeah. do we need that box? <laughs> and I think a lot of people end up going up, you know, and exploding boxes just because they don't like them. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, no, some some of those we need. You know, we need foundations. We need ethics. We need law. We need, you know, anchoring principles uh, we can't just go adrift in postmodernism, pretending that everything's a construct of a construct that pe leaves people with a high degree of anxiety if they don't know where they are which which i agree i also think that sometimes we use those uh those boxes if you will as a way to make it easier for ourselves when we would be better served by it not being so easy so for instance, um, I'm far more transparent about the being of the therapist than most therapists are. Because I don't think that it's fair to my client not to be open about who I am if I'm expecting them to be open about who they are. You talk I want to have a relationship with them, then we need to have a reciprocal relationship. Yep. You taught me that, and it, and it makes some people's heads pop in our in our clinical community. They don't like that they at don't. all. They don't, because it's so much easier not letting people know anything about yourself. Well, and there's a power differential that's implied there too. Like, yeah, if, if I'm, I'm perfect, <laughs> right? Don't look behind the curtain because you know, uh, you I might get exposed. It's like that's okay. We're working with wounded people. Um, they're but, exposing and we, themselves, and we ourselves are wounded people. Usually, but we want to make sure that we're at least, you know, working on the wounds and aware of them and not act, operating out of a place of, you know, reflexive and antiadromia, to borrow a Jung word, uh, where <laughs> we're just in the field to solve everybody else's problems because we can't solve our own. That's, that's problematic. That can cause harm. And if we are not open about our own issues, then we are we, doing that. We will do exactly that. That's, a, that's precisely it. Yep. And, and I find that people's expectation that the counselor has no problems is an unrealistic expectation. Pastors, same thing with pastors, right? And, Absolutely. And pastors get in fact, I chose not to become a pastor in my life because I did not want to be married to 200 people. Yeah. 
that's and that's real and there, you know about, we could have a whole conversation about boundary setting too and what healthy boundaries look like oh, it's terrific i mean and therapy therapeutically being a counselor works for me because it's one person at a time or one family at a time and i can handle that yeah and and you and that you see them on your terms you know at tuesday at 4 p.m and you don't necessarily have to see them again on Sunday at nine thirty, uh, around yes. everyone else. So yeah, yeah that, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with that. I really respect pastors, good pastors. I think there's some not so good pastors in the world, but I really respect good pastors. And I've had some good pastors that I've had really fabulous relationship with that have been wrought relationships because they needed to do things for the good of the congregation that weren't necessarily best, the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. But we were able to discuss that. Sounds like uh, some of our fights on behalf of the profession that aren't necessarily the best for individual professionals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, it's a sacrifice that, you know, sometimes people don't want to make. Um, a lot of people are just in it for themselves and, and that's fine. Well, but. And that's your attribution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think sometimes they don't see it as a sacrifice that's necessary. There's a weird aversion to the rising tide lifts all boats theory in our in our profession, I think. Do you, do you see that? I, I have a tendency to surround myself with uh, people who are more positive in their interactions with the profession than others. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just, and maybe it's unique to our community um, here in northern Nevada. I don't, I don't really know, but there's this weird territorialism that seems to happen, professional turf warring, and I don't get it. <laughs> okay, that's so. When when I was in when I was in school <laughs> back in the day, um, we were really working for licensure and more. Uh, yeah, there was that big fight where the, the social workers and the psychologists apparently wanted to team up together and take the MFT's ability to practice, and that's what ended up resulting in right. treating of uh, psychotic disorders being left on the table just to keep practicing. Um, but the but the whole concept is bizarre to me. Like, why did well, the social workers and psychologists even for- care? It's like, I don't want you to take away all my clients. I don't want you to, to take away... I don't want you to play in my sandbox because there's not enough sand in my sandbox. That's that's what I don't understand. I have yet to see a situation where there weren't enough clients. I know. All the therapists of whatever ilk we have. Um, and and my experience, and I think that this is something that a lot of people who are in it for the money don't really understand. My experience is that people who can't afford therapy at the 100 to 200 dollar an hour level cuz there are lots of people who work at that level just don't get therapy it's not that they um so the the marriage and family therapist or the social worker or whoever can offer <clears throat> therapy at a lower cost so they get more people because if I can get therapy for 60 bucks an hour, now I like getting paid better than $60 an hour, but I, I've, I've done therapy for a buck an hour. 
because I feel it's important that they give to me too. You don't think that devalues the profession and and violates the boundary that we set that says, Hey, it's worth this much. And if you can't afford it, make, make do, you know, I mean, cause there are community organizations like ours that do offer reduced rate when you see a student, for example, and then there's Medicaid, right? And then there's people who just don't want to be bothered with billing Medicaid. And there's people who don't want to be bothered with billing insurance. And that to me is, is professionally insulting because if we're in here truly to help people, um, we need to make the sacrifice of going to the extent that we enroll ourselves in, in insurance and commercial billing um, so that we and can there see those. Are a lot of people who don't qualify for Medicaid and also don't have insurance. Sure. There's the gaps, but, the, but they, but then again, you know, what's, what's my effort. My effort is see a grad student for a floor of $5 and a ceiling of 30. Um, okay. There's no reason that, and, and students galore, by the way, seeking placement, especially now with the burgeoning online um, academic institutional uh, yeah. path, right? So there, are, there's tons and tons of students that we can't host at Zephyr, Great Basin, True North. These are some agencies in town that host grad students. There's no reason that the private practitioner renting out the office for $800 a month, who isn't there seven days a week, can't do the same thing. There's no reason they can't do that. But they Absolutely. Don't. And they don't. I also think that I, I've always felt that treatment was more important than money. Yeah, but where do you draw the line? It, it, it raises a debate about where the line gets drawn. Because if you do it for one person, then the next person gets his wind of it. They go, well, I don't want to pay $100. I want to pay a dollar. So where do you draw the line? Or, you know, I don't want to be in a position of individually requiring income statements from people or, you know, the, and I never have, I've always done a, this is my rate. Now we're going to negotiate with each other to figure out what you can afford and what you think I'm worth. I have more than once had sat with somebody and said, okay, a hundred dollars an hour is what I, what I normally charge. Mm -hmm. I know you can't afford that. I want you to talk to each other and then come back to me and we'll, we'll negotiate the cost. They've come back and they said, we want to pay the $100. And I say, you can't afford to do that. That becomes a hardship. You won't come to therapy as often as you need to come to therapy because you can't afford it. So so isn't that stepping on their autonomy, though? If they choose to do what they, you know, at their rate, at their pace, um, isn't that like asking the question about like inserting yourself, you know, as the expert into their life saying, I know better than you about your life? No, I don't think so. It's me saying, I think you're, I think you've, you've asked me as the professional, what I think is appropriate for your level of treatment. Right. Okay. I'm telling you what I think is appropriate. Right. You're telling me that you can come up with $400 a month to come in weekly. Mm-hmm. And yet one of the things we talk about routinely in therapy is money I know you can't come up with $400 a week a month to do that. I don't want therapy to be a burden. But, and if, so but if it's important that, enough to them that they carve out wherever they carve to make it work. Well, and, and if I say to them, I really appreciate that you think I'm worth that. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to start somewhere else. 
can we can we agree that this is worth $25 a session to you? And when you guys feel like you're getting enough from it and you want to give me a raise, we'll talk about that. I wonder why we're the only profession that does that. Because I know you're not the only one who does. No, um, I'm not the only one who does. And I also think we're not the only profession who does do it. I've, I don't know that that's accomplishable in dentistry or pediatrics or in automotive dentistry, even. Maybe not so much. Automotive, maybe not so much. I, until doctors stopped having relationships with their clients, with their patients, they would be taking chickens and, Right maybe a hundred years ago, but then you're talking barter and barter has a value too, but it's the value is not negotiable. But the, and I think that for me, some of the self-satisfaction of knowing that my client is getting better is worth something too. Totally. Totally. Um, it's, it's a tough balance and and I'm glad we're talking about this because if people are listening, it's like Jake's arguing with Gail. No, we're not. What we're trying to do is, is flesh out that, if you're if you're a client consumer of the service, people are out there who will do negotiated fees. You don't the, the term sliding scale gets talked about a lot, and that's a very unique term that's only applicable to um, federally funded agencies. That's a, it's, a sliding scale has a unique term, but it's it's used broadly. But the the point is well, fees aren't fixed, right? For a sliding scale, it means that this is where the the scale starts. Right. This is the top scale. And we slide it based on your income. Right. And there's that, usually uh, paperwork. Close all of your financial mm-hmm. goods and bads to me so I can decide how much you should pay me. Right, right, right. And th- and that's not um, what we're talking about. We're talking about I it. don't like that. I feel like it's too invasive, which is I why agree. I want to do negotiated fee. I feel like it's it's the first, if we're in that situation, I feel like it's the first task of me and the client it's one of the ways we build rapport Mm -hmm. by by being honest that this is going to cost some money yeah that money is a finite resource in most of our lives if it's not a finite resource we don't need to negotiate this is how much i charge this is how much you pay me so for the clinicians who listen because we do have clinicians who listen to this too how is it not inconsistent to negotiate fees with some people and not others? Or do you negotiate with everybody? And then- I, I start that off as part of my um, shtick at the very beginning of every session. Um, not every session, but every right. relation. You know, we need to talk about money because you have to talk about money, right? I don't know. I don't know because, no. again, no other profession does this. And we're talking today, not not 1930. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, doctors with home visits that don't don't happen anymore either. So today, they say, "Here's our rate. If you can't afford it, wait and save up, or don't come in." Because the auto mechanic isn't interested in. Man, I really believe you need your car to be working so you can get to work. So I won't charge you what I normally charge you. Because of what that begets is a everybody wants to negotiate that now, and and it could potentially devalue the profession. So my question is, how does that not send a message of devaluing the service? So I find that 
with people that I have a, an excellent relationship with, such as my auto mechanic, I think I get a better deal from him than people who don't have an excellent relationship with him. But where does that line get drawn? I am assuming he's drawing the, drawing the line. Right. But where do we draw the line? Because it can't so, be by feel. That would be discriminatory. Or at least it, it opens up the gate for discrimination. Okay, so I don't think I'm perfect. <laughs> Me either. I know you're surprised. Um, and I think that for me to say there's no, um, there is some mythical spot in my life where I'm never discriminatory is real. I think that I am inadvertently discriminatory at times. I try not to be. I do my best. And if nothing else, what I really work for is being respectful. If I can't, because discriminatory is such a negative word. Huge, yeah. It's a, it's a hugely negative word. And it's a hugely negative behavior. So if I look at each one of my clients with a view of being as kind and respectful as I can be, then that's how I'm drawing the discriminatory line. Right. They're all, they're all being treated the same and given the same opportunities. Right. Right. And so um, I will give like my children, I will give clients a second or third chance. I actually have had a client uh, fire me three times and then come back and beg to come back. I can't afford to go to this person and come back the third time after she fired me. I, uh, she called me back and said, I can't find anybody else I can see. I, you're the only one who will see me. And I said, you know, Candy, I think I really need to just acknowledge that you're, you have fired me now two or three times. I think that you're right. I should not be the person you're seeing because it's clearly not working for you. You keep firing me. And I'm going to not let you back down from that. For several reasons, therapeutically, she -hmm. needed to realize that she couldn't keep firing people and then come back in and Mm -hmm. take over. That was a big one. I also think that it's really important that you recognize what you've got. And if you can't do it after two times, you're not going to get it until I hold a big boundary. Sometimes what you as a therapist have to do is hold the big ugly, right? (laughs) I hate that big ugly boundary. That's what I have to do as a parent, too. Damn. <laughs> I guess that's why we have policies, right? So if policies are in place, nothing's um, scaled or, or on a gradient of, you know, big, ugly, or small and insignificant. It's just it's just there. We don't have to feel one way or the other about it. It's like, yeah, sucks. You missed, you missed your appointment three times in a row. You know, you lose your chance on the schedule, you know, or whatever it is. Which are great. They are. Those are great. And... Sometimes you have somebody who can't make it because they are so impacted that they can't even keep track of the day. Do you say then they can never come back because they can't 
don't have that. No, level what we of say is no. What we say is uh, ninety days. You got to wait ninety days. If you're so if you're so discombobulated that you can't keep your appointments, you're inherently interfering with somebody else's ability to take that appointment slot. Who who will be consistent? And will do the work. So we say who may be wait, consistent. Yeah, Maybe. yeah, yeah. Well, presumably, right? Um, but we've done this long enough now that we can have some pr- relative predictability on it. So we say mm-hmm. wait ninety days. A lot can change in three months. But it, mm-hmm. but essentially, what we're saying is. Get your life together and make this a priority because other people are. And it's it's disrespectful to the clinician who's, you know, eager to help you and could help someone else just to have an empty slot in their calendar at the last minute. And people get that. They they totally do. When when it's explained to them when they're, you know, mattering a wet hen on the phone and, you know, dropping F bombs and it's like, hey, listen, here's here's from our perspective. And they go, I totally get it. I totally mm-hmm. get it. You're right. Okay. And we go, come back in three months. Otherwise, you're welcome to go try any other place in town, too. Uh, maybe it'll work. Maybe it's a bad fit. Maybe it's ti- timing matters, too, right? Um, well, then one of the things that Alan does, you, Alan Ritchie, you know Alan, mm-hmm. whom I adore. Yeah. Um, one of the things he does in therapy is that he meets with the family the first time, and then he says, your job tonight is to go home and figure out whether or not you want to see me anymore. It's okay if you don't. Yep. Yep. We don't compel people just to sign up on the calendar. Right. And I expect a call from you if you want to see me. If you don't want to see me, that's okay. I won't take that personally. But he says, and I get this, this makes so much sense to me. So much of therapy is chemistry. And even if our therapeutic relationship isn't successful, maybe that's what they need to have a more successful relationship with someone else. Right. I also think that the counterbalance to that is that our, it's our job to make it, make the environment as warm and welcoming and non-judgmental as possible so that we remove all roadblocks and excuses. Because uh, there are people who play musical therapists too, just so they can talk about how they tried therapy and it didn't work. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe that's what they needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the cabinet, we used to find that people would get better while they were on the waiting list. Oh, sure. Absolutely. They do. Yeah. yeah. Or they, and or I, they lose faith. They lose faith and give up. Which we, we don't really but I, I, I choose to believe they get better and I think they get better because they took some action Right. Yeah. They didn't leave it up to the external person, us, you know, to, mm-hmm. to fix them. They realized that stuff was bad enough as it was, and they, they decided to change, which absolutely can happen. Yeah. Which I agree with you, but I think that just the fact that they went, I need help and asked for it. Right, right, right. That put on the list, that was enough to move it. Yeah, yeah. At least for a so- little while anyway. Well, absolutely. And sometimes a little while is all you need. Yeah. Well, which gets back to the other uh, discussion about, you know, how humanity made it this far without, you know, professional intervention on a weekly basis for 12 months at a time. (laughs) You know know what I think, too, is that I think that crisis intervention is really where we should be putting our energy. Yeah. Uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Baldwin. Um, One of the things that she said was that, I mean, when you can catch people in that hinge moment mm-hmm. that you would, uh, that you had so many more options. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time getting people into weekly therapy and that's really appropriate for some people. 
But I find that that three sessions and you're done experience really happens in those hinge moments. Yeah. That you can, you meet somebody calls and says, we're in crisis. Our whole life is blowing up. What do we do? And we put them on a waiting list because we don't have anything for a week or two or six. Mm-hmm. And if you can see them that day, because I've done at Lassen County, we used to do a lot of crisis work. Mm-hmm. I had more good results in those right now. And I'm going to see you every day for the next four days because you're suicidal. Yeah. Then they're better. Yep. Yeah. Like long lasting better. You're right. Like long lasting better. And we don't allow ourselves that kind of flexibility. Oh, we see people weekly. Right. What if they need to be seen twice a week? What if they truly are suicidal and you can hospitalize them or you can trust them every night that they can keep themselves safe overnight? Mm-hmm. That you have a plan for what they'll do if they don't feel like they can keep themselves safe and that you will see them the next day. Well, I'll tell you what what interferes with that chiefly is certainly demand, right? So we're, we've got clients coming out of our ears at Zephyr and you can't just put somebody in the next day. No points, no appointments available. But also insurance, prior auths, you burn through four appointments in a week, you send off that claim and they go, what are you doing? Why are you seeing this person that frequently? Now, technically, it's it's allowed. You can bill one code per day. Um, mm-hmm. But even if they don't look at it, you're burning through the prior auth allocation real quick. So we have to be mindful of that. And when you ask for more sessions and this is through personal experience you ask for more sessions and the insurance company says well we think that you didn't use them appropriately we're not going to authorize the next 12 you're stuck you get somebody has to appeal that and that's more time and if you're in private practice you don't have the time exactly but one of the things that i know is that when appealed when um when appealed if you go well it it was my decision as the therapist to see them daily for that week. Yeah. Because it was hospitalize them or see them daily. Yeah, they, they, they tend to relent. Yeah. They do. Hospitals are very expensive. Yeah. They are a bean counter. Yeah. And you're a therapist. Now, in terms of ther- therapeutically, I think it's much better to keep them in their home environment. A hundred percent. And and trust them that you believe that they can keep themselves alive. Yeah. We do this with with students in schools when we do the the signs of suicide screenings and then uh, the debriefs. Um, kids who are in, they could be in ongoing crisis. Like their whole life in their through their lens is is just miserable. And if you catch them in that moment where they're like, "Yeah, I finally marked on the paper that I wanted to kill myself, and I knew that somebody was going to see it, and I knew I was going to have this conversation with you," they're mentally prepared. We're not mm-hmm. getting them in a gotcha, and we're not mm-hmm. also having their parents put them on the list to come see us, you know, weeks down the road where they're like, I, I have a belly full of food, and I just got a flirty text from my friend, so I don't, my problems are going away now. I don't have to talk I'm to you because, it's yeah, it's 3.30 on Tuesday when I don't have a crisis, whereas every other hour of the day, every day of the week, I do have a crisis. When we catch them in that moment, like you said, the hinge movement, I, I like that that um, that phrase there where it's like you could swing one way or another um they're open to the feedback and boom they're not if they're not off and running after one you know half hour 40 minute conversation in the school setting with somebody they've never met before i probably didn't do it right you know Mm -hmm. like if they just retreat back to their chaos 
I that's on me um, because yeah. more often than not, they do walk away going, "Thanks for that. I really appreciate it." My life isn't actually upside down. <laughs> like I just I just rehearsed self talk to the point that I thought it was. Yeah. Well, and and those moments, even if they aren't up and running, you've put the, you may not have done it right in your mind, but in their mind, you've just said, I, someone listened to me. Yep. Yep. We validated it. Yeah. And said, you know, are you, do you truly want to kill yourself as opposed to hurt yourself? Right. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time educating average people to be able to say the words, do you want to kill yourself? Yeah, and not and not hurt yourself or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, and when you say, I want to, do you want to hurt yourself? People who are truly tr- thinking about killing themselves don't think it's going to hurt. They think it's going to stop the hurt. Yeah, or they say, no, I don't plan on hurting myself. I plan on dying. They won't say that, but in their head, that's what's going on. That's what they're saying in their head. And I'm like, you have to ask, are you considering killing yourself yep. and I've had more parents go oh my god are, won't you give them ideas I said trust me they already it's have the idea that is a myth if you're listening and you're wondering why we're talking like this it's that's a complete myth it's been disproven multiple times over multiple research projects and I have never seen anything less than relief yep on the the person asked are you thinking about killing yourself the ones who are not thinking about killing themselves are like, oh, no, I'm not thinking yeah. about killing myself. The ones that are like, oh, thank God, somebody finally asked. Yeah, or sometimes it's a mixture of disbelief because somebody finally said it. They're like, yeah. did that really just come out of your mouth? And you're like, yeah, and you just kind of yeah. stare them down. Like, I asked you a question. I need an answer. Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and then we can move so, forward. So those things are so huge. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things about having a, a therapist who has training, especially suicidality training, is that in a 40-minute session with somebody who has answered affirmatively to the do you want to kill yourself question, is you can move them from I want to kill myself to no, I don't want to die in 40 minutes. Really quick. Yep. And, and in fact, you can go to the affirmative, I actually want to live, because you start talking okay. about all the perfect, protective factors. Because once it's out... It's out. Now we can deal with it. It's not just rolling around in your head, you know, like we were talking about before. Well, and then you can talk about how they'd want to do it. And you can do all of that yep. stuff because you started talking about it. And then when they get to the point where they're going, you know, the more I talk about this, the more it sounds like not any. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds really bad. Because one of the things that we often do is try to talk people out of killing themselves. Yeah. No, that's that begets resistance. So much better if you let them talk themselves out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Being don't... willing to talk about, and this is why I think people need to go to therapy with a trained person. Being willing to talk about the really ugly, icky, horrible stuff without freaking out is a huge skill. Mm-hmm. And it's one that, unless you had really disgusting little boys as a parent, you don't have. Right? Right. I mean, I know a whole bunch of parents who don't like to talk about blood or yep. anything else. And I know that if I can talk about anything you bring to me, because I play a great game of one-upsmanship with teenage boys who are trying to shock me. <laughs> and you can't shock me. Because there's nothing shocking that human beings do. Yeah. 
That's true. And, and I think that speaks to the, the validating, non-judgmental aspect of our profession that says, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to put me on my heels. You know, I, you may <laughs> say something that I've never heard before, but there's an old saying, I learned it from Christian, says, if a human being has done it, it is therefore human nature. You being a human, therefore, possess all the same nature as any other human being. Therefore, we're all capable of everything great and terrible that any human has ever done in the span of history. Absolutely. Alleviates a lot of judgment. So even if I personally have never heard of this thing or never imagined it, the fact that it just came out of your mouth means it's it's real. And Well, you certainly feel it's real. Yeah, that's that's right. Working with a psychotic person is really interesting. I love working with psychosis. Mm Mm-hmm which is weird, I know, but, but it's so interesting because I think it's weird only because it's so unfamiliar to us. And, and I think that's probably because you and I were trained in Nevada where we weren't allowed to do it for 20 years. I did it in California as an intern. Right. But, but even then it's like, there aren't that many people who go there because it's so bizarre as a presentation. It doesn't make any sense because it's not sensical. So people just kind of tend to avoid it. It's easier to, to treat. Call it psychosis. My favorite thing <laughs> that people say to psychotic people is, Trust me, it's not real. Oh my God. And you Worst know who you says things do. like that? Psychiatrists say things like that. Yeah. Psychologists say things like that. My best ex- work has, with people has been to say, this is clearly very real to you. Yeah. I'm not seeing it, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Yep. It just means that I don't see it. Yeah. So let's start there. One of the things I know about psychosis is that often it's just a, like a a tuning thing, you know, you're old enough to remember tuning your radio, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you get it in the right spot, you're, you're there. So when I start talking about tuning and they're like, yes, that's it. It's like, I can hear something over here. Yeah. Like, tune differently. So, you know, then it becomes a real thing. It's like, sometimes medication helps that. Sometimes it doesn't. Paranoid people who are sure people are following them. You know, they are looking at me at my house and then they're going to follow me to the next place. I like to do things like put a note on your door that says where you're going because we don't want to have any accidents on the way. Yeah. Lean into it. Lean into it, not away from it. They get better. Mm -hmm. They do. Because I'm not telling them it's not happening. I'm saying, let's just make this safer. Yeah. I, I would love to have an entire discussion about whether or not people in psychosis have a clearer understanding of the real world or a, un, a less clear understanding of the real world? Because I think there's a debate that could be had there. But I think I'm running the out answer of time. is yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think so I too. I think that it is less clear and more clear at the same time. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, for Again, I don't want to get into it now because I'm running out of time and I have to, I, interestingly, I have another podcast coming up in 18 minutes. <laughs> Um, but I think that that's, there's a lot of fertile ground to be tilled there, uh, and it would alleviate a lot of judgment and possibly provide some insights. Um, conspiracy theorists, you know, who live in that realm of like, yeah, all this stuff that you're not hearing in the mainstream media, it's like, I'm not going to say it's not happening. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to say it's not even possible because I don't know. (laughs) But for now, I'm going to live over here. (laughs) And, uh, I think there's merit. To believe in the best things about people, mm-hmm. not the worst. Right, right. So perhaps they're trying to pull this. Perhaps the moon landing was a big joke on all of us. Maybe. Boy, that's impressive. Yeah, sure you is. No, 
A lot of moving parts there. (laughs) A lot of moving parts. I'm impressed. If they actually did it, I'm very impressed. If they if they made it to the moon, I'm still very impressed. So I'm going to be impressed about it, regardless of what yep. it is. Does it impact my day-to-day? Not even slightly. Right. Well, I appreciate your time. And I, w- well, I, I always... I did what you wanted to do. I'd be happy to do this again if you'd like. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to set this up for sure. I want to talk about the psychotic stuff. But um, in the <laughs> oh, meantime, what's a, what's, what's a... If you could impart some level of wisdom on the audience, some knowledge, some one major takeaway that has to do with the, our field, the profession, the experience of, of therapy, what would you say? I'm not going to – well, what I would say is that I don't think it ever hurts anybody to talk to a professional person about their life. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is just about how, this is my vision of how the world should work. I always make the most positive attribution in every situation with another person that I can. Because it doesn't help me any to make a negative attribution. It's true. And it definitely doesn't help my relationships. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. And thanks for making time for this. Thanks for helping my brain turn on again. (laughs) Wind you up and you just go. It's awesome. Uh, I don't talk to people very often anymore. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. So, um, that being said, I'm going to go empty my bladder before the next engagement. Um, and on on behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Share this around. Bye-bye.